Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Joseph Nye, author of the new book, A Life in the American Century. Uh, Joe, welcome to Bookstack. It's my pleasure. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, the story I'm telling you say is personal, but I hope it helps historians to look back and our grandchildren to look forward. Well, I think uh, uh, anytime you try to describe the country, you're bound to be like the uh, blind men describing an elephant. You know, one thinks they have a, a fire hose, the other thinks they have a rope, another thinks they have a tree trunk. And I merely try to explain that the 80 years I've lived through what Henry Luce called the American century, here's what I grasped or felt, but I can't, I can't begin to say that I've described the whole American century from every point of view. And it is a, I mean, it's a fascinating approach. Obviously, you are the author of many uh, famous books um, of political science and history. But this is a different book. It's very personal. As you say, it spans the 80 or so years of your life of the American century. But it really is a blend of history and reminiscence, autobiography. It's really pulling all of these things together. Well, one of the interesting things was to write a memoir that wasn't just telling you the detailed stories of uh, things that interested me in my life. So trying to frame it by what's happened to the United States or the uh, country as a whole over the decades since uh, 1941, when Luce coined the term, is a way to, I, I think, put it in a context which others can relate to. So the, the choice of perspective, if you want, was, uh, was deliberate to, to get it. So it could be personal, but it could be more than personal. Yeah, and that throws up all kinds of interesting things. I was struck, for example, that um, your sense of engagement with the world, which has always been part of your work, both as a scholar and, and also as someone uh, in working within administrations, that you grew up in uh, very eventful times. Your earliest memories are of the Second World War and of the dropping of the atomic bomb. Do you think that that has an impact on the way in which your life developed? Well, I think it does. I mean, I went to Europe as a teenager uh, with my family, but I think the real um, impact on my involvement with the rest of the world was the two years I spent at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. And as I describe in the book, I made a close friend with a student from Ghana, and uh, we used to sit um, for hours talking about the future of Africa and where it would fit in the world. Um, he had great uh, hopes at that time for democracy in Africa. And um, that made me say, well, I want to go see this firsthand. And uh, so I went and did my thesis in Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania and spent a year and a half living there. And uh, from that, then I was hooked. In other words, I, when I was deciding what to do next, I went and lived in Central America and Guatemala because uh, I was interested in the comparison of their efforts to integrate their economies uh, and compare that to what the Africans had done. And from there to Europe uh, for following suit with how the Europeans had managed these problems. So one thing led to another. Um, 
But my curiosity about the rest of the world, I think, got its strongest boost from that period of two years in England. Yeah, and it's 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 one of the frustrations actually that you express in the book that uh, you have this deep interest, as you say, based on that experience on what's going on in Africa. And at various times, you think that you're going to be able to base your career on that, and you get pulled into a different orbit at different times. And as I say, that there's a, there is almost a sense of frustration, or even perhaps even regret, uh, that you weren't able to spend more time uh, thinking about Africa. Well, I, I still am interested in Africa, but if you get involved with other things, it's hard to consider yourself an expert anymore. And um, I went back to uh, Kampala, Uganda in um, 2019 after a conference I was attending in Addis Ababa. And I said, well, if I'm that close to Kampala, I have to go back and see how things were. And it brought back all the nostalgia and the fondness I had. Uh, for living in Africa. I, I was also very struck in the discussion about the early years that you do talk about at uh, one stage, you were even thinking about being a, becoming a religious minister. Um, I mean, is there a religious sensibility, do you think, in the way that you see the United States uh, and the world? At one point, you say that America has serious flaws, but we also have a capacity to recreate ourselves. Well, uh, yes, um, I I suppose that, uh, as, as I pointed out in another place, I do have an ideology, which is I'm a child of the Enlightenment, and um, which covers a, a vast range of things. I can remember uh, Jefferson's All Men Are Created Equal uh, having a deep resonance for me, even though we know Jefferson didn't practice what he preached, and uh, nor did the country live up to it. But I remember in, in 1954, when uh, the Supreme Court issued Brown versus Board of Education, uh, outlawing uh, racial segregation in schools, um, being thoroughly overjoyed as a teenager, uh, even though I didn't have any African-American friends. I was living in rural area in upstate New Jersey. Um, but th that really goes back to the impact of these Jeffersonian ideas, or if you want, Enlightenment ideas. After all, uh, Jefferson took the basic framing from John Locke, and Locke had life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Jefferson had life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But any of those things have, have meant a lot to me and continue to resonate as I look at the world. And it is one of the interesting aspects that uh, about reading this book as we follow the span of your life that, you know, it does remind us of the different times, but also the progress in many ways that the United States has been through. It, we've traveled a long way. For example, when you were a student at Princeton, uh, there were no women in your class. There were no black students in your class. Yes. And uh, that was a, a, a great loss in retrospect, though. I don't think we realized it at the time, but it meant that years later when I had a chance to meet Michelle Obama, who graduated from, from Princeton a little later than I did, I told her what a difference it meant to me to have her experience. In other words, that even though we weren't contemporaries, uh, just the example of her standing up at the Democratic National Convention 
as the wife of an African-American nominee for president and expressing herself so well. And my thinking, this is a product of Princeton. It's a much better place than when I was there. You were at Princeton, then you went to Harvard. Uh, as a graduate student, you came across many illustrious professors, not the least of whom uh, was Henry Kissinger, gruff, uh, you call him, uh, in the book. Uh, but you also say that you were strongly influenced by him, and eventually uh, you would even occupy uh, his Harvard office once he, uh, once he went to Washington. Um, obviously, he's uh, passed away uh, very recently. Uh, but what was he like to work with uh, when you were a graduate student? He wasn't warm and cuddly towards students. He was, as I said, gruff. Um, he asked me in 68 to go down with him to New York and to consult for Nelson Rockefeller when Henry was still working for Rockefeller. Then he went to work for Nixon and we parted company. And then uh, I went to work in the State Department of the Carter administration. He was very generous to me then. And, um, you know, we occasionally have dinner together and um, uh, he, he would send me nice notes if he approved of something I'd written. But um, there were certain aspects of his policy which I never reconciled myself to. And so I had to write a, uh, an assessment of Henry's morality, which I did for foreign affairs shortly after his death. And I, I had to to admit that it was an ambivalent relationship. I, I learned a lot from it, but um, we didn't always agree. And is, is that ambivalence something which is in the nature of uh, figures like you and Henry Kissinger and Arthur Schlesinger who move backwards and forwards between the academic and the policy worlds at one stage? Uh, you say it would be misleading to imply that there were not a number of ethical questions uh, or trade-offs uh, about moving back and forth in that kind of way? Oh, it's very true. I mean, the, the life of an academic and the life of a, uh, a policymaker are, are very, very different. I mean, one simple thing is time. As an academic, you have all the time in the world to perfect something. In the policy world, you have no time. You're drinking from a fire hose. And if you miss your timing, you fail. But the other is obviously uh, power and integrity. You have to pay attention to power. You have to trim your sails somewhat through the prevailing winds, but you can't um, you can't do it at the expense of undercutting your integrity of who you think you are in the long run. So that tension, both on on time uh, and thought, and also on power and integrity, those are real differences and. It's probably a healthy tension. You wouldn't want uh, academics to uh, suddenly think only in power, and you wouldn't want uh, policymakers to forget that they're acting under the gun, or so to speak, uh, and behave like academics. And the, the issues that you were dealing with, particularly in the Carter administration, could hardly have been any weightier. You were working on nuclear issues and um, uh, kind of not just in, in the United States, but, but globally. Um, I mean, wh what was that even like psychologically? I mean, your access must have meant that you were one of the few people who fully understood the enormity of what a nuclear strike would actually look like. Well, uh, that uh, was one of the reasons why I, I took that job in the Carter administration, because if it 
if if nuclear weapons spread, there was a higher probability that they would be used. And I thought of nuclear use would be a, a, a disaster. Um, and at that time, at the beginning of the Carter administration, there's a widespread view that um, nuclear weapons would spread widely. In fact, even John F. Kennedy in the in the 1960s thought that there would be uh, more than 20 countries with nuclear weapons by 1970. Today, of course, uh, there are nine. So we're not doing well, but we're doing better than expected. And there was a great fear at the beginning of the Carter period that that curve would suddenly um, take a sharp turn upward because in the aftermath of the oil crisis of 73, 74, people thought, well, we have to turn to use of plutonium, which is a weapons-usable fuel produced in nuclear reactors. And if you had a, a massive international commerce in plutonium, uh, that greatly increased the prospect of nuclear spread. So as, as Carter came into office, it, to his credit, he took this seriously. And I had the uh, good fortune to work in the State Department for Cy Vance, but also to be the National Security Council coordinator for nonproliferation across uh, Carter's government. And um, it, it was a very heady period. I mean, I was heavily criticized from all sides, as uh, you could imagine goes with a position like that. But um, at the end, you know, I got a medal for making a difference. So it was worth it. And and more generally, you feel that the Carter administration will eventually be revised upwards by historians. Yes, I do. I think, I mean, uh, Carter was often not uh, very strategic. He had uh, important values and goals, but he sometimes um, didn't play the pieces on the chessboard in the right order. And this led to a good deal of criticism. But I think in the longer term, when people look back on Carter and they see the efforts that he made such as giving back the Panama Canal so that we weren't faced with a guerrilla resistance throughout Latin America or working at Camp David to get the beginnings of a peace process in the Middle East or elevating the role of human rights in American foreign policy or uh, my issue of pressing hard to clamp down on the proliferation of nuclear weapons. These are all things which I think were important been far-sighted, I think as people get a little bit away from the day-to-day -day irritations with this or that thing that Carter did, uh, his historians will say, yeah, this was pretty impressive. One thing that uh, does stand out about uh, these years is the, is the physical toll that being in office uh, takes. There's a, a nice little story that you tell about going on a family skiing holiday where everyone everyone's out on the slopes and you realize just how stiff you feel from uh, having having been uh, working in Washington for the year. I mean, it, it's a reminder of the physical toll of power. It's something that's very much in the news at the moment uh, with President Biden being in his 80s. Uh, obviously, he's the same generation as you. What What do you think about the way in which that story has been handled in the news in this election year? Well, I, my personal view is that um, Biden would have been wise in the longer perspective of history 
to quit after one term and go down as the hero who saved us from Trumpism, rather than to continue to consider himself as the person who could save us from uh, Trump's depredations on the uh, democratic process in the foreign policy. Uh, but that's spilt milk. I mean, it's clear that he's going to run. Um, uh, more power to him, but as you get further into your 80s, your stamina doesn't hold up as well. You can you can still have a clear mind and you can have strong will, but uh, the capacity that you used to have is um, is diminished. When I worked in the Clinton administration in the Pentagon, one year I visited 53 countries in 52 weeks. Um, if you didn't have a lot of stamina, you couldn't do that. And uh, if I think of trying to do that today, obviously I couldn't. Yeah, I mean, th that period uh, in the Clinton administration is also something else which is in the news in many ways. Now there's been a lot of criticism of things like NATO expansion uh, in the 1990s. I'm fascinated because, of course, this is something where you are there on the ground, so to speak, in policymaking, but you are also, as a political scientist, someone who's analysing these these things. Um, wh where do you stand on that question uh, now when you, when you look back as someone who participated, but also as somebody who's analysing it? Well, I, on the NATO expansion issue, uh, the Defence Department under Bill Perry wanted to go slower, didn't want to do zero, but it was important to have a framework which stabilized Central Europe. There was people like um, the eminent political scientist John Mearsheimer, who wrote an article, I think it was in 1990 or so, that, which he called Back to the Future, that the center of Europe would become a political vacuum. Uh, some countries would align with Russia, others with Germany. And this would lead Germany to develop nuclear weapons. Um, it was not a happy scenario. Our feeling was that uh, the prospect of orienting yourself toward NATO over the long term would have a stabilizing effect. Um, Clinton, under the influence of Dick Holbrook and others, speeded up the process. And it's a debatable argument as to whether uh, that speeding up the process was a good or a bad idea. It certainly did provide a framework of stability, but Putin has used it as an excuse for his invasion of Ukraine. I think that's, you know, stretching the truth and stretching history. If you look what Putin wrote in uh, the summer of 2021 about restoring Ruski Mir, the Russian world and the Russian empire, I think those thoughts of his weren't based on NATO expansion. They were based on uh, Russian imperialism. You do say, though, at one point that unipolarity had relaxed the constraints on American foreign policy and that the unipolar moment unleashed the danger of hubris. So there does seem to be a, a sense in which that um, American foreign policy during this period after the Cold War perhaps lost its moorings? Oh, yes, I think so. I think the hubris really struck uh, with the Bush administration and the invasion of Iraq. Um, which led us to, um, I think, a series of very foolish 
policies that uh, have cost us greatly. And if you look at American soft power, our ability to get what we want through attraction rather than coercion or payment, was pretty high in the uh, Clinton years and into the beginning of the Bush years. American soft power has declined dramatically after the invasion of Iraq. I mean, that's perhaps your most famous concept, uh, soft power. It's a phrase which is known around the world, is, is used in newspaper columns, academic analysis, policymaking uh, circles. In, in some ways, it strikes me as a response to questions about the whole concept of American decline, which is something you've always been interested in. I wonder, how do you, how do you revise that idea of soft power now um, when hard power is so much in the news headlines with things like, for example, the invasion of Ukraine. The great British historian Paul Kennedy had uh, published The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, in which he said the United States was going the way of Philip II Spain or Edwardian England. Um, and I thought there's something wrong with that. Uh, and I sort of totaled up American military power and American economic power. And I said, there's still something missing, which is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. And um, I felt that uh, this was underestimated. It wasn't that it was more important than hard power of military and economic resources, but it was an extra dimension, which if you added it to uh, the hard power uh, gave you a force multiplier, which uh, meant that you could do more uh, with, and save on carrots and sticks, so to speak. People have said, well, is that still hold true today? And yes, the, the, there is still an interplay of hard and soft power. Take the uh, invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, it's a, uh, you need hard power to counter the Russian invasion. But it's also true that Zelensky, who had made his life in television, knew that he could attract others, which in turn led to the provision of hard power, military equipment. So yes, the military equipment in the long run turns out to be more important, but uh, soft power did play a role. Um, and something similar is happening with the Gaza war, where uh, initially Israel had much more sympathy and attraction after October 7th and the horrors of the Hamas attack. Uh, but as it's um, killed more and more civilians in its response, uh, it's beginning to lose uh, that attractiveness. So in that sense, it's paying a cost in terms of its soft power, even as it um, uses its hard power. Now, there may be, it may be difficult to do one without the other. I use the term smart power to refer to strategies which can combine hard and soft power successfully. Um, and sometimes it can't be done. But uh, if you can combine the two, uh, you're better off. Now, obviously, we're in an election year. What would you predict for a second Biden term or a second Trump term? Well, I think uh, Biden uh, re-election will lead to uh, more of the same. In other words, we've 
Biden has made a strong point over uh, continuing and strengthening American alliances. He stood up strongly for Ukraine. Um, he's taken issues like climate change and and put some domestic legislation behind our international promises. Um, I think you'd see more of the same with Biden. Trump, I think, would be quite different. He's talked about withdrawing from NATO. Um, so I think alliances would be weakened. Um, he dismisses climate change as something of a hoax. And he, I think, would be very damaging for American soft power. After all, if your slogan is America first, it means everybody else is second. And uh, that's not a great way to make yourself attractive. You conclude the book um, in just about an upbeat note. You say that humankind is baffling, that you don't have many answers for the grandchildren you wrote the book for. But crucially, you feel able to convey what you call a faint ray of guarded optimism. Tell us about that guarded optimism. I do think uh, a little historical perspective helps in the sense that American periods have been cyclical. There are times when we've been up and times when we've been down. Uh, after all, in the 30s, uh, Franklin Roosevelt thought we might lose our democracy. And in the 60s, we had... Uh, assassinations and cities in flames and uh, failed presidencies of LBJ and Nixon. So we've had some bad periods in the past and we've recovered from them. And I think it has to do with the resilience of American institutions. And I think if we have a bad downturn, some people would say we're in one right now. Um, the question is whether those factors will still be there on the upside of the current trough. Um, again, I, I have a guarded or faint optimism that it will based on what I've lived through. Uh, but I can understand if somebody makes a case for pessimism. The book is A Life in the American Century. It's written by my guest, Joseph Nye, and published by Policy. But for now, Joe, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Well, thank you, Richard. I very much enjoyed it. That's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 